0: Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season, new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our hundredth episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I'm very excited today to welcome Steve Bisson, right? No, I did it wrong, didn't I?
1: That's okay. It's Bisson, but we'll go with Bisson. That's fine. I take it.
0: All right. (laughs) It is a pleasure to have you here, and um, I'm excited about our conversation today.
1: I'm very excited, too. Thank you for having me.
0: Where are you talking to us from?
1: Right now, I'm in uh, Whitensville, Massachusetts is where I live.
0: Is it cold?
1: Um, It's not as cold as it's been, but it's about 17 degrees right now outside. Uh, yeah. It was like it's going to be zero with the wind tonight. So, uh, yeah, it's a little cold.
0: Nice, nice. That's like Montana weather.
1: Yeah, except Montana (laughs) goes minus twenty. So I'm I'm... yes, we
0: we do we do that. (laughs) Let me tell you a little bit about Steve. Steve is a therapist, coach, author, and podcaster. He's worked in the mental health addiction field since 1999. He was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec. Steve moved to Massachusetts in 1999 to pursue his dream of working in the mental health field. He has been a therapist since 2003 and has owned his private practice since 2011 called Straight to the Point Therapy. Trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, Steve has worked in diverse fields, including community outpatient services, the criminal justice field, a mental health crisis team, as well as a trainer for first responders and correctional staff on mental health and substance abuse. EMDR trained, he has has processed trauma and bereavement issues throughout his career. He has been practicing telehealth therapy since 2015. So tell me in the land of telehealth, how is that for a therapist that uh, it seems like everything you can do remotely now after COVID, but you were kind of ahead of the curve there.
1: Well, it was, that's always what I found interesting is that in 2015, when I started it, I, I, you know, you belong in different boards, you different, different colleagues. And they're like, you're not going to read people's body language. This is wrong. This will never take off. This is like the worst thing in the world. You're going to really miss the, the, the whole boat with your clients by 2020 in March, something happened and people were calling me and saying, Steve, how can you do this? And how can you do it with HIPAA compliance? And so everybody was my friend after that. And what I've <laughs> learned What I've learned is to, you know, even though I'm, you know, I'm a little vindicated. That's my anger you heard there. Uh, I'll I'll meditate on that tonight. But uh, (laughs)
0: what
1: I what I've said to myself though is that it's it's like anything else, and this is what I was saying in 2015. I'll say in 2022, online counseling is not for everyone, and people Mm -hmm. can do telehealth, and that's great, but some people can't do it. Just like people who can do podcasts, like we are right now on Zoom, I mm-hmm. think this is great. I love it. But for some people, it has to be face to face, and that's okay. It's not everyone's. It's not a one size fits all. And right. when I when I hear about telehealth now, like I hear people like, I'm just going to do telehealth. That's also just serving your clients. I think a balance is needed, and right. that's what I said in 2015. I will say it in 2022, and uh, I just believe in options for people.
0: What do you think is the top of the pile when you think of telehealth? What is the most important thing to remember when when consulting with a client via telehealth?
1: Just like any online counseling or any type of relationship, including even like I, I always talk about the relationship. You know, you can talk about CBT, MDR, DBT, ABC, DYF, whatever you want to call it at the end of the day it's not any of that that works it's the alliance you create with your client and if your client mm-hmm. feels comfortable so you got to meet clients where they're at so one of the things right. that i talk about in telehealth is that because it's not as you can't shake hands it's not as physical i tell people like what is the one symptom you can work on to relieve even somewhat somewhat a little bit or temporarily And if you're able to do that, like within the first session, you know, I feel depressed. I feel like I have no one, you know, you reached out. That's a great idea. You talked about how you really talked to X, Y, Z and they're, oh, I didn't think of that. So if they get just a little bit of relief, that telehealth session is going to go really well. And I think that that's what I would say is that it's the therapeutic alliance and really trying to relieve even, you know, 10% of a symptomology. And I think a lot of people will do well with that.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think it's true. It's it's so much about the relationship. And I think if you leave that piece out, you you're just um not not doing good practice.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's why I talk about that connection. And one of one of the things that always makes me feel really good is I've been told that I'm very authentic and I love the fact that people like, Oh, I can see that you're authentic. So it's not a bad thing to have. And most people, that's all they're looking for, whether it's in their personal relationship or professional relationship, all we're looking for is authentic connection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's back up a little bit and tell me about Montreal. What was your favorite thing about being raised in Montreal?
1: Wow. That's a hard question. And You know, Montreal is, to me, the most multicultured city in North America. Yes, Uh, I have
0: heard that.
1: And I think that that's what, if you ask me what I miss most, is that multicultural universe. Even if you just look at the two main cultures, which is uh, French at the base of France and English from England. We have Scottish, we have Irish, mostly English. You My dad grew, I grew up with a dad who spoke English and a mom who spoke French. And at the table, my mom would speak in French. My dad would answer in English and I would answer in the language that whoever I was responding to. Mm. And we understood each other. Uh, The first few dates I brought in were very confused. But for me, that's what I missed the most is that I could be in downtown Montreal and hear like seven languages. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what I truly miss the most. That's what I loved about Montreal. There was uh, this openness to community and culture and not going, oh, my God, I don't know that culture I'm going to run from. It's like, I don't know that culture. Let's explore it. What can I learn from it? And so I think that that's the number one thing, if you ask me about Montreal, that I loved. Uh, there's so many other things. I mean, the summer festivals are so amazing. We have the Jazz Festival. We have the Just for Laughs Festival. We have a film festival. Uh, we have the Franco Feliz, which is the French music festival. Um, there's the jazz. As I said, it, it's just an amazing city. It's just vibrant during the summertime. And it's. I'll always remember going to see. I can't remember who was. I always say it's Ella, but I could be wrong. But there was a someone playing in on the main stage. And it was literally a million people in the, in the crowd. There was three arrests. There was no vandalism and people are just having a good time for jazz. I mean, you, you got to yeah. do something very spectacular for jazz to bring people like right. that together. So that's that Montreal is just more open in that way. Really missed that.
0: I have friends who live there, and they say that the food scene is pretty spectacular there, too, because of all the cultures. Is that true?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, my my favorite part is that you, there's a couple of streets in Montreal. If you don't like the food where you're at, like on Prince Arthur Street, you go down, you can have uh, Ethiopian food, you can have Italian, you can have American, and you can have Vietnamese all in the same line. And they're, it's just amazing. Like, what do you feel like today? You have four choices. It's not Applebee's and TGI Fridays.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> Which are basically the same thing.
1: <laughs> kind of. Yeah.
0: Okay. You're killing me. It's getting close to dinner. So we can't, we have to switch conversations <laughs> now.
1: <laughs> all right. No problem. No problem. I get it.
0: So tell me um, in, in addition to being bicultural, tell me a little bit more about your family.
1: Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I was bicultural in my house, but my family, my dad had uh, my 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 grandmother, his mother died in 82. He had no brothers or sisters, he didn't know his dad. So he was he was the only English person in his family, so to speak. And my whole family on my mother's side, which was a uh, at least 20, 25 people, I stopped counting. Uh, we would meet once a week at my grandmother's house for supper on Saturdays, and mm. not everyone showed up every single time. But there was, you know, days where there was all twenty of us, and then sometimes there was ten, sometimes there was four, and then something. But you got to see your family every single week and just have that fam- familial experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, Quebecers are a tough bunch. You know, we grew up in a, uh, culture of mostly English speakers for a long period of time. So Kerouac Beckers are tough people. My family was born tough, blue collar, um, very down to earth, you know, and we were very tight with each other, but we also picked on each other. Like you wouldn't believe. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was always great because if we had something that we said that was ridiculous, we would be challenging each other. And if we needed support, we had like a whole family just supporting each other. And yeah, there was little problems here and there. But sure. the blue collar stuff is something I I use as a I'm so lucky to be sitting on a chair and listening to people talk. So when when my family's always done is they encourage me to get, I was the first one to get my bachelor, never mind my master's. And my family always kept me humble on regards to that in a good way, not in a mean way. And I'll always remember that you know, my uncle worked on trucks for 30 years. My other uncle worked on a farm for many years. You know, blue collar stuff has worth, so for me, I see it as a privilege, and I remember where I came from.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, it's interesting, your wording in your bio, you uh, mention it being a dream of yours to uh, work in the mental health field. Where did that originate from?
1: Um, So when I was 12 years old, my best friend who played football and uh, soccer with me died in a fire. Um, He he was found with his little brother in his arms in one of the closets trying to save him. Mm -hmm. So... You know, at that time, and again, I if there's if anyone who wants to hear blame, that's up to them. But there's no blame on my family. There's no, this in the '80s, my my dad and my mom were as supportive as they can. They said, "Don't forget, you got a game on Saturday," and that was the support I got. And it was something that I buried very hard until I was about fifteen, and. It, one day I just started crying for no reason, couldn't understand why. And eventually I read a book by David Burns called Feeling Good and New Mood Therapy, which changed my life and made me realize that this is what I'm going to do. And when I did one of those tests from the guidance counselors, they said, you you would be a good therapist. I'm like, you sit on your bum and you listen to people talk and you get paid for it. That's right up my alley. I'm willing to do that. <laughs> um And obviously it's not that easy, but it it was really, I I never want any human being to feel alone in any type of loss, trauma, mental health issue, because it was probably the hardest parts of my life at that point, not by anything that anybody did, but kind of like, I didn't know where to turn. And this is the eighties. It's not like going to therapy was nice and whether, you know, a blue collar family in Quebec. a little bit like a blue collar family in the United States. You don't need therapy. Suck it up, buttercup. And I think that's what happened. That's how I got into this love.
0: Do you think the world is changing in that regard? Do you think we're becoming more friendly and open to mental health help?
1: I feel like we had started to turn a corner, but I think that unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your point of view, the pandemic really opened the eyes to many people on mental health because people were feeling anxious. People were feeling depressed. People finally saw what community trauma can feel like when the whole world is kind of isolated Mm -hmm. and how people have become more paranoid or more angry and all or nothing thinking. I think that we've come a long way on a mental health. And I think that stigma is certainly lifting. I still think that we have a ways to go because I think a lot of people also say like, You got to deal with your own stuff. You don't need to, um, you you don't have to turn to someone. And I think that we're still working on that. But I know that, you know, I've worked in so many different places. If in 1999, you would have said to me or anyone that the police would invite uh, ride-alongs with mental health or social workers to go on calls. I think in 99, everyone would have said, you're crazy. That ain't going to happen. And today I know Massachusetts and New England in general, and I know I see it like obviously Miami, Memphis, and all that. It's all like, no, we want that. We want some sort of plan so we can help mental health in the community. So I think we've come a long way in the 23 years or so I've been in the field. Mm -hmm. I think there's still ways to go, uh, but I do think that we're lifting a lot of it and having more and more uh, people call me for support and knowing that- People are wanting to think about mental health now. I think that's a very important thing.
0: You hear more and more the words trauma-informed care now. So trauma-informed care through not only the healthcare um, fields, but also in trauma-related fields and and, uh, education and uh, so many different venues, you hear that through. So that encourages me as someone who is on the receiving end of some great, um, mental health care. Um, but I, I'm encouraged to hear that. So, so what in, um, your work is the most compelling thing about working with people?
1: I I paraphrase something that, um, I, 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 I paraphrase Howard Stern and I know people may or may not like Howard Stern, which is fine. I'm not trying to plug him or not. (laughs) The best thing about my job is I don't know what the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. The worst thing about my job is I don't know what the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth. And for me, the most compelling is also what's the most positive and negative negative because it's there's something about being able to help someone and listen to their words but also not knowing what's coming next there's something that's fun that keeps you i'm not on edge in a cortisol uh, midbrain type of thing <laughs> but I, cer- I, cer- I certainly have a uh, like i got to listen to the words because you know if if i'm like, like di- daydreaming or thinking about what i'm going to have for uh, supper as we were doing earlier Then maybe you miss something that's really important. So I think that the compelling part is to pay attention to the small things, really being able to pay attention to that, but also not knowing what's going to come out next is both scary and exhilarating at the same time.
0: That's really interesting. You know, here's the thing. One of the things about my therapist that I find very fascinating is she remembers everything. She remembers names of people that I forget. And I'm like, how in the world do you do that? And I know she's a trained, trained in listening and I'm trained in forgetting, but good Lord. I am just like, I don't know how you do that.
1: Well, if, I I would say that most people will tell you my, if you ever interviewed my clients, like he remembers the most minute details. And that's something I don't know. It's something that compels me. People's stories. Unfortunately, one of my biggest faults is that if you say John, Jane, Jill, they're all the same people to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, you know, Nicole. No, I don't actually. I've talked about Nicole seven times, you know, the one with the wig Oh, the one who survived oh. cancer, well, the one who had this. And then like, oh, you remember the whole story, though? Yeah, I remember the story. I just don't remember names. And I know if uh, your listeners are going to send me some ideas of how to remember names, I haven't quite run out of line, like things, but I've tried like easily 12 different things.
0: Yeah. No, it's, that's definitely not my forte. So in working with different aspects of mental health, so working in substance abuse field, doing, doing, um, crisis care, doing, um, working with trauma, what, uh, is, is there a one piece of it that you find more, more fascinating, more fulfilling than another?
1: And there's a risk of sounding so dark, Nothing makes me more compelled to work hard than trauma and bereavement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that sounds dark, but I think that if someone is at their darkest moment and they're willing to talk about it to you, it's a privilege.
0: Absolutely.
1: And for me, I my clients tell me about their traumas. And at the end of the session, I always say, thank you. And they always, the ones who are not used to it, like, why? Thank you. And I'm like, you trusted me. That's one hell of a hard thing to do. And I respect that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're my therapist. Yeah, but you didn't have to. You could have made up a story, avoided it. I mean, I've known people who avoided it for five years. <laughs> and so for me, I, that's what I think makes, like, as much as it sounds dark, You know that's why I love the crisis work for 15 years. Working in a jail, did a lot of suicidal suicide watches and work there. And with my clients, I do EMDR and trauma work. And as weird as it sounds, that's probably my favorite part.
0: You know, um, I I worked as a minister for 25 years and worked in a lot of environments that uh, were crisis related. And I think. I I think I understand what you're saying. There's just something very emotionally intimate when someone invites you into that space. It's a very, it's a, not to get too woo woo, but it just is a very sacred space um, when you're talking about your deepest fears and your deepest hurts and the things that um, you you grieve the most. I think that's really sacred space.
1: And I think being a minister, you also get to hear things and you get to hold someone up, so to speak. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there's something so trustworthy, like they got to trust you for that. They got to really have like, oh, my God, Jill is my person. If Jill drops me, what the hell am I going to do? And to me, that's the stuff that, yeah, have I dropped a few? Probably. I don't know. I've never been told I did, but probably. But at the same time, there's something about that that just energizes and makes me feel like, oh, my God, this is probably very hard for them. So I got to hold that space.
0: Right. Definitely. Here's here's the challenge, though. Ministers are called upon to do counseling and therapy and all of you know these crisis care and bereavement and all of that. We're not trained for that. Right. <laughs> Nobody says that. But, you know, you get one or two classes that are about that are about, um, counseling and that's it. We're trained theologically. We are not trained for crisis. And so, and so we're, uh, we're running into a fire with not all the equipment that we need. That is for certain.
1: <laughs> well, my, my favorite, uh, Reverend that I had a few years ago used to say, that I was like, we're not trained in that. And I'm like, and you're pretty good. It's called learning on the job. And I'm like, yep, that's probably (laughs) true.
0: (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. How would you, this may seem like a weird question, but um, how would you describe trauma? What is trauma?
1: What I, when I do a lot of my work, because my first language is French, it's not English. I've actually turned a lot of these very complex ideas and simplified the language. And what I explained to as trauma is it's an overwhelming experience. And that's the easiest way. so you you can't manage the situation because it's too traumatic. So that's how I describe trauma. And there's so many different types of trauma. We know about sexual trauma. We do know about physical trauma. We don't know about emotional trauma, but there's so many other traumas that we don't know about. I mean, uh, we don't really talk about workplace trauma, but, you know, whatever you call it, gossiping, or sometimes like people just saying nasty things about you that aren't true. Um, There's childhood trauma that may not be that. Maybe you're a parentified child. That's a pretty traumatic thing to do or having to do things for yourself because your family isn't there. And that's even harder. And that's a trauma, Uh, community trauma. You know, i being in boston in 2013 and thinking about what the boston marathon bombings did to our community right. i, I it, you know that's such a community trauma i think people have survived it but it, it was very solemn around here i would compare what happened in 2013 here to the solemnness of the world trade center in 2001 and if anyone is triggered i apologize this is not my goal but talking about community trauma uh oklahoma city Um, talking about any of those things, like I can, like how many shootings can we talk about? And it's, it's not when we talk about trauma, that's scary. If you're an individual who happens to be black and you've been victimized, or you hear about someone who's been victimized just because they're black and whether it's police or anything else, I'm not trying to create any that's scary. That's a trauma. Event. If you're right. gay and you go to a bar and someone comes in and shoots everyone, that's a scary event. If you're Jewish and someone comes in and holds hostages, that's a traumatic event. I think that trauma can be so much of a community and sometimes it's specific to different cultures. And I'm not, I've named three or four cultures here. I don't want to exclude everyone. I'm just giving examples. Right. Uh, Well, I
0: think, I think I asked that question because I I think people talk about trauma and think about the big T traumas. They think about, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, aggression. They don't think about, you know, microaggression or that workplace trauma or those things that we might call little T traumas. And, and so I think that it's good to define it, right. And to say, it is all of these things. It's a really big bucket
1: it's a huge bucket and traumas sometimes are not things that we notice until it's later on. And what I feel is that people might be overwhelmed and they get the freeze response. Mm -hmm. And so later on, they're like, my God, I froze when I heard X, Y, Z, but that traumatized me because of my history or because I'm very sensitive to any cultural type of, and again, not trying to pick on any one type of culture. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people have that trauma response because it's fight or flight, it's your midbrain and it's fight flight. Once you have like trauma, pretty severe in the PTSD realm, you get the freeze response. I know a lot of people talk about fawning right now. I'm a researcher at heart. There's no research on it just yet. So I'm not going to be like saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying until there's research, I'm not really looking at it, but I see the validity of it. And so really looking at how like people pleasing is a trauma response perfectionism is a trauma response and it doesn't mean you have ptsd which is where i sometimes get a little annoyed is that people go to ptsd automatically ptsd is a specific uh set of criteria but trauma i don't know most healthiest human i know has had trauma and i think we have all had trauma it's sometimes hard to define for ourselves
0: Right, right. Well, and I think if you read, uh, you read the, the the writers about it. You read Levine. You read so many of them. They, you get the idea that it is so much broader than we think, and so much deeper than we imagine. And we kind of skim the surface on our definitions sometimes. So that's why I asked. I thought you could give good perspective on that. So, <laughs>
1: well, well, I hope I did. <laughs>
0: You you do. You do. Definitely. So your, um, your book is finding your way through therapy. Um, Who is that book for? And why did you, why did you write it? I'm intrigued by the title. What is it? What does it all mean, Steve?
1: All right. So finding your way through therapy came from uh, me not wanting to write a book. And what I mean by that is this. (laughs) My, I, I supervise a lot of people in community mental health and other people I've mentored in the community for their private practice. And a lot of my clients says, your approach is pretty unique and you should write about it. Nah, nah, nah. And I heard it so many times that in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to write the book, get it out of the way. And so I always tell people I wrote a book against my own will. Uh, obviously I didn't, I wrote the book cause I wanted right. to, and I really wanted to take a lot of the myths of therapy out of the way. And the book is about my method, but I think that a lot of people use that method. I mean, if you go through, if you just Google uh, mind, body, spirit, and therapists, you're going to get a lot of them. That's what I do. That's kind of like what I look at. I'm a Reiki practitioner. I have a nutrition uh certificate i i am obviously i'm at the counselor and i talk about how the ins- it's important to have all three in line not just one or the other mm-hmm. uh and that's in the book uh my first motto for my before it was straight to the point therapy um i was honest real change that was my motto and i talk about mm-hmm. how honesty being real and change is so important for counseling mm-hmm. and i think that what really compelled me is that people like you I've always been told like, you don't pull any punches. And I'm like, I don't see the value in pulling a punch. I'm not going to hurt you on purpose, but sometimes like, you know, if someone says something really screwed up, I'm not going to say that's great. I'm going to go, well, that's screwed up. I might use more colorful language, but trying to keep the explicits out here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to explain how honesty is important, not only for the client, but for the therapist. And that's the therapeutic alliance and the stuff that we talked about earlier. So for okay. me, it's really taking psychology and mental health and therapy and saying, look, it's not the woo thing that you think it is. It is so much broader and open than you ever imagined.
0: What are some of the myths of therapy?
1: That the therapist just sits there and goes, mm-hmm, mm, mm-hmm, mm. that's not <laughs> happening. I've never, my, my therapist has never done that. My therapist just kicked my butt. And one of the things that I've learned to do is that it's not also like, all right, you came in for major depression disorder, we're doing CBT, so let's learn all or nothing thinking from CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. No, that's not how it works. You might bring it up when it's kind of relevant, but you may not. Maybe we're collecting a history. Maybe you just had an acute stress that just occurred. You lost your parents suddenly. You lost someone near you suddenly. And you might have an acute stress to work on that understanding your own responses a therapist is not there to judge you when you're using dark humor i see the value in dark humor i use it myself you know when you work in the community mental health and you work on a crisis team and you go with the police on different calls your dark humor kicks in really quickly and i know it's a defense mechanism yeah. but it's but when you tell people oh you're trying to normalize the hard stuff you've been through what you're not going to tell me to stop, I'm like, no, that's not what therapy is about. It's about seeing where it came from and see the value in it. And maybe then do you want to change it? I'm not going to tell people stop drinking because that's the other thing that my book and in general, I feel therapy is not understood. I people like, oh, you're going to tell me to stop drinking. Oh, you didn't know the answer already. You didn't try that yet. And they laugh and I'm like, yeah, I know it's not that easy. So let's work on why it's not easy. So right. it's not about shaming people, it's not about Interventionist, And again, nothing against interventions per se, it's just how it is. People see it. It's about meeting a person where they're at, seeing what's working, seeing what's not working and kind of like meeting, just being good to them. I think that what I feel sometimes we misunderstand. And I think my responsibility as a therapist is to make sure that I kind of like mimic a healthy bound boundaryed relationship with them. And when you learn, oh, this can be healthy, and this guy can have healthy relationship. And that's for men and women, by the way, because men have poor boundaries with men sometimes too. And women right. def- can have definitely some issues with boundaries with men. But when you show how that can be, and again, I'm not trying to be gender identifying. It's just examples mm-hmm. here. Then you're like, oh, I can have boundary, healthy, respectful relationships, still have fun. I'm not saying that we're like, you know, eating bonbons and having too much fun, <laughs> yeah. but I think that therapy is really about let's mimic what a healthy relationship feels like.
0: Right. You know, I was in a, um, I was just thinking about addiction. I was in a dual diagnosis uh, trauma psych facility um, and also uh, addiction specialist facility for um, three months, and I, I didn't know anything. Not being an addict myself, I didn't know how interrelated those things were. That that addiction is not the problem the problem is generally the traumas that are feeding into that and that you're trying to you're trying to regulate your system with substances or with behaviors and i didn't understand that and i, I wished, i wished in my work of being a minister i wish I would have known that but um, it was really really informative and you know just as just as an aside this was really my first deep dive. Um, I had a major mental crash and this was my first deep dive into mental health help. And, um, and I think that that experience people think of, you know, counselors and therapists and everything, in these real scary terms. And like, like you said, in, in terms that, um, uh, you know, maybe somebody's not that involved, and they're more passive, and the you know all of that. But I have never felt safer than I did in an environment where people are surrounding you to help you deal with your stuff. And I think that that's something that um, people. uh, don't know about a relationship sometimes with a therapist or with, uh, with a person that's helping is how, how safe you can feel if that trust level is there.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. And I even say to people that even if you don't think you have an addiction, you, I I'm from the school. We all have an addiction. Some of them are healthy. Some of them are so not so healthy and it's not just substances. It can be behaviors, as you said, but realizing that we have like AA is not my, not my favorite thing, but the one thing I'll always give to AA is once you have a community around you, it makes a world of difference. And so, um, I always tell people that even for mental health and having a dual diagnosis, I ran a, for about a year, a partial hospital in, the, in the area and, um, Having that group, sometimes just like that d- dynamic, even as a leader of the group, sometimes I'd sit back for 50 minutes and let the group kind of like take care of each other. And that having that dynamic of oh my God, John is there for me. Jane's there for me. Sue's there for me or what have you. There, there's something about that that's so extremely powerful. And I, I think that it's not just for addiction or mental health. You can be the healthiest person in the world. We all, ha- We all need people around us
0: we do. And, you know, I, i came away from that experience feeling like the great equalizer in life is pain everybody has pain of some sort and how we deal with it and how we manage it and how we how we interact with that is is key and um, so some of my best friends are that i that i came away from that experience with are dramatically different in lifestyle and and in every way from me and yet we we have, we have this bond that has been forged because of commonalities in pain and trauma. And I think that was, that's a really special gift that comes out of kind of a shithole situation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, pain, pain is the great equalizer. Absolutely. I agree. I think that in death.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So you started a podcast then, which well, which is the chicken, which is the egg, which came first, the book or the podcast?
1: So the book came first and people who read it and said to me, you know, a lot of this stuff could be talked about in a podcast. So, uh, set up the podcast probably nine months after I published a book. And so my Podcast was released uh, last May. I'm on uh, episode 33 that came out yesterday, and it's a little bit of the same mission. Thank you. I'm trying to really make therapy reachable to everyone, and kind of like let people in on these conversations I have with other therapists. Not talk about I, one of the things that my criteria is: is I work with therapists. That if you're going to start using big words just to impress people, you ain't you ain't going to be on my podcast. Um, I want people are going to be talking about their own life as well as what therapy is like and what the process is. And then I do a few like uh, what I call solo episodes where this, the the last episode that I did was on um, the, the mental health and how to diagnose yourself with TikTok and how dangerous that's become. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to be doing a bunch. I've done a bunch of them on how trauma and PTSD are not the same. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have one coming up about the pandemic and how therapists are not good right now and not because they're not good people. They're just Mm -hmm. mentally not good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not, I I think that that's the stuff that I kind of want to like humanize the therapy, humanize therapists and just have like, you know, have that conversation about what therapy is like. I'm going to have like three or four people coming up who, uh, who are going to be talking about their experience with therapy and how it was. And it's not always good. And that's okay. I think we can learn from that. hopefully the audience really enjoys hearing the stories that are good, bad, and ugly in that way, kind of like see what they want, but you'll always hear me say the same message you need to have the therapeutic alliance. You you don't need to like your therapist, but you certainly have to have at least trust in your therapist. As my clients, I have a board in my office that I put up and I don't, I haven't talked about that in my podcast. I got to find a way to put that in, but there's a board on my wall that says "Fu," And I put a Mm -hmm. check mark every time I hear it from a client and people like, oh, that sounds dark. I'm saying, no, that's the Mm -hmm. mark of respect that you got them. And Mm -hmm. that's why I think that that it's important to kind of know about therapy. Cause if you get so upset at your therapist, that means he hit a nerve and that's not a bad thing or right. she obviously, but
0: right. yeah, absolutely. Well, i um i am looking forward to listening to the podcast and i want to find find the book and read it i think um, i'm going through a therapist switch right now and so that that transition is really challenging and i think maybe some of what you have to say is applicable to that so and i think your um, your message like you said normalizing therapy and therapist is is huge so how do people get a hold of the book how do they find the podcast? How do we keep track of you?
1: Uh, book can be found on Amazon, Bards and Nobles, and uh, around Massachusetts. There's a couple of bookstores that actually carry it for me. Um, if not, you can go to my, my website. There's a link right there: Steve lmhc.com. If you want to follow on my Instagram, I do memes and uh, different things like that, and that's on and my and my Instagram is Real And, uh, Facebook is Steve B. So LMHC. So yeah, there's a bunch of ways. And if uh, you want to listen to my podcast, finding your way through therapy, uh, all major platforms have it. And my podcast, maybe, maybe I'm a little biased, but I think it's pretty good. Although I like yours a lot too.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Steve, this has been a great conversation and I appreciate it. And I wish you the very best. And thanks for investing, investing time with us today.
1: Thank you for the opportunity and being so uh, humble and uh, receptive. So I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this
0: episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillReilly.com, on Facebook at JillReilly.Author, Twitter at Jill author, and Instagram at JillReilly.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at jill at org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.